Welcome, everybody, to the 11th session of the McMaster Collaboratorium Series, a cross-disciplinary initiative between the Executive MBA and Digital Transformation, the Director's College, and the Health Leadership Academy at McMaster. I'm your webinar host, Professor Michael Hartman. I also happen to be the Executive Director, Principal, and Co-Director of the projects I just mentioned, which makes for a bit of a long title. Our webinar series examines how leadership, governance, and innovation best practices and principles are evolving in real time. And what this means for board directors, our senior executives and our emerging leaders. Today is a digital transformation Wednesday and an important topic, uh, which I am sure will generate lots of passionate views and opinions, which gets me to the Zoom house rules for our session. We have over, or we'll have over 100 attendees on the webinar. And again, I see some interesting, familiar names, including uh, my uh, EMBA students and alumni, Director's College students and alum from across the country, and uh, some new individuals joining us as well. That's wonderful. So with that, for those of you who do not know my colleague, John Delacoste, joining us from his home in uh, Northern Italy, John is the founder of the Center for Ethical Orientation and works with boards, senior executives, and strategic planners to develop the principles and practical sensibilities for achieving uh, the ethical excellence that is now fundamental to business excellence. Uh, he's widely sought after, a speaker to a variety of associations and industry groups on topics such as ethical leadership, corporate responsibility, and organizational trust. He's a graduate of the Owner-President Management Program at the Harvard Business School and earned his Master of Divinity at the University of Toronto and is a faculty emeritus member of the Director's College. Welcome, John. Thank you, Michael. Uh, our second guest, uh, Tim O'Brien, leads Ethical AI Advocacy at Microsoft and is responsible for a program to drive and promote the responsible development and use of technology. Uh, inclusive of public policy and the ethics of artificial intelligence. As part of this role, Tim conducts research focused on ethical use of AI across geographies and cultures. He has over 25 years experience uh, in the tech industry and is a uh, frequent speaker on AI ethics and has been featured in international media, including the Wall Street Journal, MIT Sloan Management Review and NPR. Tim has an MBA uh, from the Kellogg School of Management and has been pursuing uh, a Master of Jurisprudence degree at the University of Washington School of Law, studying cyber law and public policy. So welcome, Tim, from Seattle. Thank you, Michael. So John, to start off, you would often start off your director's college classes with a quote from uh, G.D. Sapelli. Um, the ethical responsibility of governance is to navigate, uh, and I've inserted the line, uh, between what's legal and what's moral. What do ethics have to do with governance and how has our current environment blurred the line between what is legal and what is moral? John, a simple but complex question to start. And it's, it's really fundamental. It's fundamental today because of the particular crisis we're going through globally. And it always seems that in moments of breakdown, it's when the ideas of ethics draw new currency. But the answer to your, the second part of your question leads us to a real understanding of why ethics are important for governance. 
what we've really done is we have compressed ethical discourse in corporations to really be a function of compliance. And so we brought ethical understanding very close to the legal line. Make sure we deliver all our legal obligations, check those boxes, a very policy kind of orientation. What we rarely have done at the board level or even at the leadership level is exercise ethical imagination as a moral art, as an asking of really tough questions about responsibility. So the point that's made between law and morality, for example, if we think of history, for the longest time, slavery was legal. There were movements that took, went over centuries, really, that changed the mores, the moral imagination of society, until finally there was a movement, first in the UK, then in the United States, where that changed. That didn't necessarily change people's attitudes. The law protected sort of like a base minimum of what was acceptable from a rights perspective at that time. We've seen how those laws have continued to evolve. Think about women's rights. Think about labor law. Uh, protection for workers. There was a, a tragic fire in New York called the Triangle Shirt Fire, and it took 40 years for that, after that, before the laws caught up to create safer workplaces. Now we're looking at Tyson and these other meatpacking places where, again, both because of contagion and safety, worker safety becomes an issue. So the law is always trying to catch up to our moral sensibilities. That's, I think, the... the so the role of the board is not to follow the law. Of course, that's the basic, that's the cost of entry. There's no virtue in that. The board is responsible, they are trustees. They are entrusted with the reputation of the organization in its fullest relationships with regulators, with stakeholders, with shareholders, with their own employees. So they need to be asking the tough moral questions that lead to ethical understanding that is ahead of where the laws are. The laws are the minimum, they're the default. If we think, and you know, Michael, a lot of my research these last years has been around the issue of trust. How do organizations create trust? How do individuals build trust? How do leaders create trust? And what we know is that it is not by dictate. It is not by trust me. It is by actions where you over time see that my point of view has been heard, there's a respectfulness, there's a kind of engagement. So I really see board members particularly as the chief ethics officers of their organization. Uh, now, is that happening? A few organizations, yes. Every year, the world economic, there's a, a, a world most ethical company certification that comes out. What they found is that the boards that work at the level of highest ethical attainment and highest business attainment do something very interesting. They do extreme planning. They ask the toughest possibility in terms of moral capability. What happens if we were exemplars? And then they ask the opposite question. What is the worst thing that can happen? Where are we most vulnerable? What happens if we lose our reputation completely? And neither of those scenarios come to the fore usually, except now because we're in a crisis. But what it does is it opens up our bandwidth. We begin to understand problems with more dimension. We begin to not settle for the compliance minimum or for the usual sort of strategic advantage. We look at complexity more. Um, so for me, ethics is a real strategic skill. 
it's part of thinking about our complex world with the complexity that it really deserves. If, um, if I had a practical recommendation, not everyone who sits on a board has that kind of ethical vocabulary, that ethical development. Not everybody has worked in situations where they've had to deal with those problems. What we know is that companies can't be ready for tough ethical problems if they haven't done their work on small problems to build the capability. And so what I love about Tim's role that we're gonna be hearing more about is that we need advocates. We need a board advocate who will take the responsibility for be, to become the ethical insight person, the ethical questioner. And questions are the way we get there. It's not about following rules. It's not about here's the five answers to be ethical. Mm -hmm. It's here are the questions to engage this issue with the seriousness that it deserves. Um, John, can I ask you a question? Um, and it, it's a challenging question. Um, I'd like this first one. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the question is, um, when you were teaching in the director's college, your context certainly was international, but it was Canadian. It was North American. And, and you have called a new, a new place home, and you have for a while now. Um, are there reflections, uh, are there uh, nuances to that question I've asked you that, that are particular to your new environment? Well, there two sides to that, Michael. First of all, from being outside North America, being outside the Canadian context, I have to say that the governance thinking in Canada is actually very advanced. We need to be proud of it but we can't be complacent, we need to continue to build it. What I'm finding with Italy, uh, so we've been here for two years full time, we're now going through this horrific tragedy of what's happened with this lockdown, is that the resilience of people is ahead of where their leaders are. So people are talking about, no, 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 it's not just reopening, it's actually about something rebuilding at a much more radical level. We can deal with problems that were around for a long time, be it political or corporate, and we can actually create something new because in Italy, they still have the experience of the great rebuilding after World War II. And I would say that this is the key issue for boards and executives right now. All over the world, we're seeing reopening occur. We're seeing, to your question, what the laws are around that. We're seeing what the regulations are in terms of hand washing or cleanliness or masks. But the key issue is actually to create assurance. Assurance for customers, assurance for employees. Assurance is a quality of trustworthiness and trust can only be built through ethical care. Thank you, John, thank you. Maybe Tim, building on, on what John has said, but also drawing on your 25 years experience in the tech sector. Uh, why is it the concept of ethics, um, for me, always seems to be the forgotten topic on the tech agenda, or if it is, it, it tends to be the last topic on the tech agenda. Think of my tech conferences. Uh, and is this any different in the, the current COVID-19 world? Well, I think your tech conference experience is uh, perhaps pretty, pretty similar to mine. Um, independent of the technology industry, the, the center of gravity in academia for study of ethical tech is, is science and technology studies. And STS has been around for 20 plus years. I think the first program was started by MIT in the 70s. And uh, it's looked at this, this issue of what is the impact of technology on, on people in society. And 
you look at the, I guess, the value proposition or the purpose or the, the potential impact of that versus the tech industry ethos that we've seen for a number of years, which is, you know, innovate at all costs, commercialize your idea, get to market fast, uh, drive it to global scale and change the world. And so when you, you look at these uh, forces, uh, which in a perfect world we'd, we'd see aligned, we'll get to that in a minute, um, but they were in opposition. So it wasn't a fair fight. Obviously, uh, history is kind of speaks for itself. We're, we're in a situation now where a lot of these concerns were, were ignored or uh, dismissed. And then these products and services were taken to market. And then the aftermath was dealt with uh, retroactively. And this is what we've seen in video games. We've seen this with the mobile device uh, addiction, um, you know, myself included. Uh, we've seen this uh, with respect to social media and what it means for the spread of disinformation and threats to, to democracy. So um, AI is kind of the thing that brought all this uh, all this to the to a head, and the industry is now paying attention to potential harms from technology for a lot of the reasons that um, that John talked about. It's, it's an extension of governance, right? Governance started off in the '60s uh, with corporate and social responsibility. Then we went through this kind of 80s, 90s era of shareholders uh, above all, and all the other stakeholders were uh, enjoying some second-class citizenship. Thankfully, now we're back to an era in which all stakeholders are considered. Shareholders, customers, partners, employees, the public, uh, and society as a whole. Uh, the thing that's happening with, with um, COVID-19 is it's, it's kind of ripping the mask off of some of the inequalities uh, that exist in society that STS researchers researchers have been talking about for 20 or 30 years. One of the throwaway lines that we heard quite frequently at the, let's call it the early days of the pandemic, which seems a little odd because that was about 45, 60 days ago, seems like much longer, was the COVID-19 was, was described by many as the great equalizer. We, we heard this, right? We heard people saying this on Twitter and elsewhere. And it turns out that, it, that, it's, that it's not. Um, the thesis was that if you're tall or short, or if you're rich or poor, or if you're liberal or conservative, the virus doesn't care, everyone is, is affected equally. That's obviously not true uh, based on what we're seeing now in terms of who's impacted in the form of serious illness or, uh, or fatality. And here in the United States, we're seeing cluster outbreaks in places, uh, primarily prisons, uh, nursing homes for the, the elderly and meatpacking plants. That's, you know, if you look at the New York Times list of the top 100 cluster outbreaks, that's where they're happening, and those tend to skew toward uh, lower-income people who make an hourly wage, uh, people of color. Uh, all these divisions in society are showing themselves in a uh, fairly uh, um, obvious, undeniable way. And when technology companies come in and say, you know, hey, we can help, we have a solution here, um, a lot of those solutions can go a long way, even in the form of something like uh, contact tracing or digital contact tracing, which is the smartphone version of the thing that they were doing in Singapore in 2003 during SAR. And it can be effective, but one of the privacy preservation levers that builders of contact tracing apps are using is, is opt-in. You get to control your data, you get to decide this won't be imposed on you. Well, we know who's going to opt out. And, uh, and John uh, talked quite a bit about this, trust. Who doesn't trust the government and who doesn't trust the healthcare system? For people who've been criminalized for pretty much all of recorded history, um, people of color, certainly in the United States who have a long entrenched distrust of the, of the healthcare system are not gonna opt into a system, uh, a system like that. So it's, it's, it's very important 
I think as we think about uh, the, the solutions that we, we apply to this problem and the way the companies approach it, that we, we think about it through a socio-technical lens rather than the age-old tech industry lens, which is, hey, we can innovate our way out of any problem uh, as long as we have enough engineers and enough innovation. Necessary, it's not sufficient. Um, looking at this, this problem writ large through the lens of social science and inequality in society uh, is a critically, critically important thing. Maybe, um, uh, and you've, um, you are very, very sort of, um, sort of clear and frank in, in your comments, which I greatly appreciate. Um, maybe to reflect a little bit on uh, when we entered into the, you know, the early stages you know, just back 45 days ago. Um, to what extent uh, uh, have we suffered and the tech industry suffered as well from a disconnect between the hype and the reality? You're referring to the, the hype of what tech could do or the hype yeah. of the seriousness of the problem? Uh, the hype of what tech could do. Uh, I was rather pleased to be honest with you that rational voices jumped into the fray fairly early and just said, hey, time out, wait a minute, everybody, let's just be realistic about what we, we can and can't do here. Um, it's our view of the world, uh, independent of COVID or, or um, uh, health crises, that the role of technology is to augment what people can do. The role of technology is to empower people to, to solve problems, not be the solution unto itself. Mm. And so that's certainly been, been our, our position on this, this whole uh, digital contact tracing, proximity tracing uh, issue for sure. Um, AI and uh, predictive analytics and algorithmic decision-making is also being applied to uh, other aspects like predicting propagation of spread and how this is going to play out. Um, I think as we all know, this is the garbage in, garbage out problem. Predictive analytics takes historical data, uses math and rules to model how the future is going to look, and then you test your hypothesis against that. There is no historical data. There's no data set you can apply. The last global pandemic was 100 years ago. And so the way you, you bridge that is through uh, assumptions, uh, which you have to document and be very transparent about. So I, I feel okay about the, the privacy discussion that's happening relative to contact tracing. Uh, I feel um, uh, amateur data scientists are becoming a little bit too vocal about what they see in the, in the data. <laughs> and uh, it actually is pretty, pretty sophisticated uh, what's going on uh, with respect to Imperial College London and a lot of the universities here in the United States that are building these incredibly sophisticated predictive models. Well, maybe that's a, a good transition to my third question to you both. And, uh, you know, can you speculate? And this is, you know, it's speculation uh, on what might be the new set of needs, practices, and principles to emerge when we finally return to the new normal. And specifically, Tim, uh, do advancements in AI have the potential to further blur the line between what is legal and what is moral. So maybe Tim first and then John to comment. <laughs> so two questions. What, what can technology or the tech industry do to help kind of manage how, how this plays out? Our, our CEO Satya Nadella has described the company as a, as a digital first responder. Most if not all the companies uh, that we serve as customers are dealing with some measure of challenge related to this. And our job is to, is to help them weather that, uh, either through helping their employees be more productive, working remote, or you know, some other measure of, uh, of, of assistance and help and empowerment that, that we can provide. So that's really, that's really 
our role? The short answer is yes. AI can certainly help with uh, a lot of that, just running the business operations, uh, regardless of what kind of vertical industry you happen to be in. You also have to be uh, mindful, again, of, of divisions within society as it relates to um, access to technology and digital device. So e-learning, everyone's talking about e-learning. You have a lot of kids going to school at home, but even with, you know, not all school districts have access to broadband internet. So you have an inequality there versus rich postal codes versus low income postal codes. Even within a rich postal code, not all the students who live in that area uh, will have access to the broadband uh, technology. So you can't just throw technology at the problem and assume everyone has, has, has equal access to it. You have to be mindful of that and uh, also help bridge that gap rather than just say, here's some software, here's a, a service. In terms of lawfulness, I mean, John hit the, hit the nail on the head. Lawfulness is the, I mean, it is the low bar. If you can't, if you can't abide by the law, you probably shouldn't be in business. So what, what should we aspire to? Uh, that being said, uh, we do see uh, situations where the law is being broken, and um, quite often it's, it's not intentional. So, for example, there was a recent Berkeley study in which uh, lenders were charging uh, otherwise equivalent Latinx and African-American borrowers higher interest rates uh, for the, the same loan. Now, um, there's very little notion, I think, of, of intentional racism on the part of the, the lender. Uh, that's clearly illegal, but intent looms large here, uh, it, as it does in criminal and civil law, because we uh, assign a higher moral opprobrium to somebody who knows something is wrong and they do it anyway. So the question here is, is are the people being harmed? Do they have the resources to take on a giant bank or lender and say, you know, I've been unfairly given this high interest rate and uh, this algorithmic decision system harmed me in this way, even if it was unintentional? Chances are, no, they don't have the resources to do that. So that incumbency falls to the lender to be more responsible in the way they use these systems, the way they provide transparency into how these algorithms decide who gets what interest rate for, for what, what loan. So that's a form of governance that I think John uh, alluded to uh, as well. You not only have the government and the, the laws and the statutes telling you you have to do this, but you have to police yourself in a way uh, that will uh, lead to um, uh, that will have an impact on uh, the reputation of your, your company. But assuming that everyone's complying with the law, what else could we do? Most of the fails that we see, most of the ethics and tech fails that we see that I use with customers in the form of examples, most of them are, are unintentional. They're completely lawful. Disrespecting people's privacy, especially here in the United States where we don't have strong privacy laws, it's very lawful and legal to disrespect someone's privacy. So you have to set a uh, higher bar. Transparency into your reliance on algorithms to make decisions on behalf of your customers. There's no law. There's no algorithmic transparency law per se. You have to decide you're going to, going to provide that above and beyond what the law does. So there, there needs to be a, a higher bar beyond the minimum of just legal compliance. Now, uh, Tim, uh, you've uh, both taught, I believe you've, you've taught or you studied uh, cross-cultural Sort of, uh, um, sort of cross-cultural studies. You're doing your master's in jurisprudence. So my question, uh, which is interesting, when you have an audience or you have attendees that, that East Coast to West Coast, um, into the United States, to Europe, and we're all sitting in these interesting, uh, you know, uh, community bubbles to a certain extent, where our outside space is different than someone else's outside space. So I'm, I'm wondering if you can reflect a little bit around these issues around. Um, um, uh, you've mentioned the United States, 
but other jurisdictions. There are different weightings, as we know, between the sanctity of privacy mm -hmm. and security. So I don't know if, 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 if you can maybe reflect a little bit about that as well. You know, Singapore is an interesting example because when SARS showed up in Asia in 2003, it was in Asia for two and a half years, but it was eradicated in Singapore in, I don't know, three months or something, very, very quickly. And it was used, they, they pioneered basically what we refer to as contact tracing in this, in this context. Hyper-targeted quarantines, they had this wristband program. I had a recent uh, trip planned to Singapore in March, which I, of course, canceled, but the, the lead up to the decision had me going to the Singapore Ministry of Health website every morning to say what's, you know, what's the case, load, what's the situation. And the, 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 the banner page said, hey, we here at the Ministry of Health would like to thank our partners in law enforcement <laughs> for helping us with gathering all this data. And, uh, and the level of detail was, was extraordinary. Uh, but we did a part of my uh, cross-cultural research. We did a case study on Singapore in the aftermath of SARS. And um, the, the Singaporeans are obviously fiercely proud of what they've accomplished as a country in 50 years. But in the aftermath of that, it actually cemented the allegiance to the state. The people said, hey, they did what they, they were chartered to do. They kept us safe from SARS. And um, we have no problem. We're willing to pay the social costs. Uh, Asian culture is a little bit different than Western cultures where social order is held in much higher esteem in Asia versus here where it's all about individualism, at least in North America. And so we see this happening again. The problem is that uh, the contact tracers in Singapore missed the fact that most of Singapore's modern gleaming infrastructure is maintained by migrant workers mm -hmm. who reside in dorms that are very crowded. So Singapore recently after weeks of positive press for having gotten their hands around COVID-19 uh, are dealing with one of the biggest uh, localized outbreaks in Southeast Asia and it's migrant workers uh, in dorms, which were simply missed in their contact tracing. So these inequalities tend to be uh, semi-universal, um, our cultural differences notwithstanding. Maybe John, if I could ask this, the same question. So what do you speculate will be some of the, the new norms and practices? Um, I hesitate uh, to think that a crisis actually will change us because mm -hmm. I've been through the dot-com crash, I've been through the financial crisis and other things. Now this is something different on scale because every human person on the planet is participating in this vulnerability. But actually Thomas Kuhn in his study on paradigm shift basically said paradigms don't shift in crisis because in crisis, we're trying to survive and return to what was there before. Usually they shift three, four, seven years later when we see the new patterns. What I've been saying to people who have been asking me for, for counsel on this is I ask them, first of all, on a human level to reflect on how this experience of lockdown, of exposure to this contagion, of perhaps knowing people who have gotten sick or died, how has that changed you? If we're learning but not changing, then the behavior that we are going to basically fall back to, that we will default to, is the same as before. So this is a time where I ask people, are you reflecting? Are you using? Here's a chance to think. Are you thinking? And often people will say, actually, no, I'm getting so much information. I'm tracking social media and everything else. I'm more connected than ever. And so I'm still in a thinking deficit. And this to me is a board problem. It's a leadership problem, but it's a personal problem. So we have to have the time to think about this. Uh, John, uh, Tim used a really interesting expression when he said this pulls the mask off, this COVID thing has pulled the mask off of structural issues. I went back and looked at some of the research 
on communities or countries that have recovered from previous crises. The US with the Great Depression, uh, the tsunami area that was wiped out in, in Southeast Asia. And usually the period of trauma led to a moment where they said, we can actually build back better. And not only that, the solutions we had in place before weren't really that perfect. And if we think of this crisis, which is a health crisis, it sits up on top of an ecological crisis. Pope Francis had the greatest line on this. He said, we now have sick humanity, but we haven't been paying attention to the sick planet. So this crisis sits embedded within that, plus the challenges that new technology, technology is going to accelerate our capability. Everything is gonna be even faster, but we haven't caught up our moral bandwidth to the reality now, let alone to what will emerge in five years with the technology as we continue to move forward. So I think this turning inwards, and it's not just a personal thing, because to the question you asked him uh, about interdisciplinary, studying different things, meeting different people, this is where our horizons shift. Mm. I was after, after the financial crisis, the World Economic Forum called me and said, how will the banking sector restore trust? And I said, actually, I don't think it's, it's, a, it's a PR problem. I think there has to be almost like a truth and reconciliation committee. These bankers have to go into the communities where people have lost homes, where they've lost jobs and not take the blame. It's not for that, but it's to hear the story of the other so that the next time I'm in a decision-making place, I will have that story front and center. So I've been thinking about what happens, for example, to our ethics when we're wearing masks. Because that's going to be a reality in Italy until there's a vaccine. They've already announced it. So if we're all going to be wearing masks, and there are ethicists who say that the, that the face is the primary signal for our ethical need, if I'm hurting, if I'm crying, if I'm joyful, and the mask camouflages that, we now have an added filter that distances us from one another. So one of the things I've, I've written about here in Italy is that it just requires us to return to some of the courtesy that Italians usually have. We have to say buongiorno, we have to say hello, good morning. We have to speak through the mask so that our identity and our intentionality is expressed beyond that tissue that's now gonna be interfering with our seeing one another. So it's a real moment for thinking about this and when we return to our humanity, we find that the wisdom's already there. It's not something we have to learn. It's just something we have to heed. And sometimes asking questions, having people in other disciplines bring us their point of view, lets us understand our own deep reservoir of wisdom to bring to the problem. Maybe I have one question for both of you, and then we have some questions from my colleagues. And my, my question is, John, um, uh, we've known each other now for a, a while and, and we do share a, a common connection in that we're both, we tend to be optimists. And we, uh, you know, we're, we're amazed at human creativity. And so with that in mind, our opening webinar was on environmental social governance with Coro and Judy Kant. And from Coro and Judy's perspective, the S in ESG, the social, the societal, is, is, is the most, uh, um, is the key issue these days particularly for institutional investors and uh, institutional activists, that it's all about the, the, the S, um, uh, making sure that organizations don't lose sight of, of, of their social and societal responsibilities. 
On the other side, we also had uh, individuals who say, well, if you're looking just to the next, you know, next quarter, and you've got to make, you've got to keep the business running, uh, is there a risk that we throw those things that we lessen the importance there? Where, where do you fall? Is, is, is that S, will it be as important as ever for companies? Yes, but Tim made a very important point, which he said, we used to actually have a social contract in governance and in corporations in the 60s and 70s. The 80s and 90s, the, the philosophy of business changed to give exclusive priority to the shareholder, maximize shareholder return. For the last 10 years, we have been shifting back to a multi-stakeholder model. But it means that most of the people who have been trained through the 80s and 90s and into the early 2000s or in senior positions or board positions exercise the muscle of shareholder first and have not learned necessarily, haven't been exposed to the kinds of questions and skills that are involved to get the S part of that equation. Um, I call it the despair from pragmatism, where we feel such pressure to be locked into results that we lose a sense of those other larger responsibilities. So that is definitely a pressure. What I feel is that we are in a moment of very fragile possibility, that there is so many things that can come out of this. But what the research also shows us about past crises is that people want simple answers to complex problems. They will often default to the way that they thought before and try to impose that again. And this is where tyranny comes from. Uh, and again, the Italian context. Italy had real struggles in the First World War, even though they won, huge sacrifice, a broken population afterwards that had something called the Spanish flu. Again, hundreds of thousands of people got sick, thousands and thousands died. And two years after that, Italy elected Benito Mussolini, 1922, after the 1918 flu. So that shows you how in some instances you go to the easy solution, to the dictator who says it's us against the world and here's how we're gonna do it. Um, so that is something we have to be cognizant of in all our institutional constructs, that leadership has to be collaborative. It has to have a very different horizon than just one result metric. And Tim, maybe a, a, a slightly similar vein, um, is it realistic to assume that, uh, you know, our, my opening comment around ethics being on the last, if not at all, on an agenda? Uh, can it be made to be part of, part of the dialogue a little bit more, or is it, is it still something that needs to be further down the line as we, as we think about these issues? Oh, it, it's already started. Um, it, it's, it's, already, it's already started. Uh, it's kind of an interesting evolution uh, in the, the social science research world from academia, because one of the things that these researchers have done is have managed to get ethics curriculum, ethics and moral philosophy curriculum added to computer science curriculum as being mandatory. We have about 115, 120 universities here in the United States alone that have added ethics as a required graduation requirement. So it's not just for doctors and lawyers anymore. You cannot get a STEM degree going forward without studying this. And so one of the things I'm a little, a little worried about is that the, the, the cultures that exist within technology today, and John alluded to this, it's people, you know, my age, uh, who you know went to business school in the '90s and read books about Jack Welch uh, are entirely incompatible with these 
you know, ethics educated, socially conscious, you know, Gen Z uh, STEM graduates that are going to show up in these companies on their very first day at work saying, hey, what, why did we build this product and who is it for? And if we think about the harms that it's creating for vulnerable people, right? These are questions that are not being asked today. So 10 years from now, uh, as John alluded to, people like me, you know, we're out of the workforce, we're retired, and this new generation, I think, of socially conscious people, both engineers building products and the senior managers that run these work groups in these country, companies, um, will potentially make this a solved problem. Between now and then, companies just need to decide, are we going to make this part and parcel to the way we think about development, deployment, use, and sales of this, uh, of this technology or, or, or not? And at Microsoft, we've decided we're going to do that. We've decided we can't get, uh, we can't plausibly expect the world to trust us as a, as a, as a provider of, of technology uh, without doing that. Other companies have made different decisions. So uh, I think uh, the, the winds of change are directionally consistent, which I, I think this will be uh, no longer optional in the foreseeable future. Uh, Tim, I've got uh, my first question from my colleagues uh, uh, directed uh, to you, Tim, and a little bit of building on, on, on what you've just mentioned. Um, so this is from Marla's Butcher. Um, how do boards get tech companies who develop, say, personal outbreak tracking devices to think about and take responsibility of potential immoral applications, say, privacy breaches and false accusations of their tech development? Well, I mean, part of a big part of what you need to do is provide a governance process uh, as part of the development that aligns to your public policy position. Uh, we were chatting about this a uh, little bit uh, the other day, where today I think in in the world there's probably somewhere on the order of 300 or you know some some single digit hundreds number of, of ethical frameworks for artificial intelligence. They're everywhere, right? They come from tech companies, they come from think tanks, research institutions, universities, uh, and they all kind of sound the same. These things need to be fair, they can't discriminate, they need to respect privacy, they need to be transparent. So there, there's a lot of them that's uh, uh, concerning, but they tend to be consistent, so that, that's a good thing. At some point, you have to make those principles real when you operationalize them at the work group level when you actually start building and the thing that boards need to care about is that if you have a, a company who's put themselves out there in a fairly public way saying, we stand for X, where X could be privacy, accountability, fairness, uh, you had better well have a governance process as part of the business operation that ensures that when products are designed, developed, deployed, and ultimately come to market, they reflect that policy decision. And uh, otherwise, it's just a big ethics washing exercise. Right. It's just a big press release, you know, policymaker <laughs> uh, evangelism exercise and doesn't really re reflect it in the, in the products. I think operationalizing principles through the hard work of governance and, and selling it into the engineering culture in your, your company, which doesn't happen overnight, takes time. Uh, that's the most important thing. Can, can I ask, and then John, this is a question in a previous conversation we had. Um, um, is there a, a, will there be a time that you can envision uh, in the nearer term, Tim and John, where an uh, AI will help create an ethical black box and say, and help us navigate this blurred line between legal and moral? Um, is that something that, uh, John Delacosta, maybe John, because it's something I, you raised. I, I've been advocating this ever since dashboards became popular 
on CEO desks. And so with all the other metrics that were coming in daily, hourly, minute by minute around performance or sales targets or everything else, I wanted there to be one widget uh, that basically said, and what, what's the ethical implication? Or to ask a, an ethical question to interrupt data. Because one of the things we know, some of the social science exams, some of the social science research shows that when we look at a problem only on a financial statement, only through numbers, that it actually numbs our ethical sensibility. And so what we need to do is continuously interrupt analysis, which is a great skill set, with the question that says, but maybe that isn't the complete answer. Maybe there is a, an impact or a reality beyond what the numbers demonstrate. So for me, the opportunity of having technology interrupt our usual flow of thinking is something that is probably more possible than creating a black box at this point that actually will do the ethical problem solving. I think it can go part of the way there. I sometimes use the analogy, and Tim may correct me on this, that the difference is that because digital is zero and one, combinations of numbers, that ethics occurs in the space between them. Ethics is about relationship and about trust. And the data can get you part of the way there, but ultimately it's an aspect of character. And that is about relationships and my reputation or integrity within those relationships. Good job. I, I don't know if you want to comment on, on my question. We have a few questions from, from, my, uh, from our audience here, but uh, Tim? I guess a, a minor comment on nomenclature. The term black box has kind of uh, got a bad rap in the AI world because mm. one, one of the biggest problems we're trying to solve in AI is the proverbial black box problem. Black box, yeah. In which uh, these algorithms are making decisions in ways uh, we don't understand. Independ independent of, of terminology, uh, our, our view about AI has always been its, it's role is to augment human capability, not, not necessarily replace it. Uh, in, in a task-based context, uh, sure, robots can sometimes do a better job. Uh, but in, in general, there are some unique human attributes that just can't be, can't be uh, replaced by computers. Curiosity, empathy, things you just you can't necessarily model computationally. Um, so I, I'm... I'm I'm not aware of any research or any kind of uh, thinking along these lines. Um, and maybe I'm being thrown off by the <laughs> use of the term a little bit. Uh, but but when it comes to human judgment, uh, the more you try to automate judgment, uh, I think you get more and more on a bit of a, of a slippery. Well, well, maybe uh, uh, another question from one of our attendees, Emma uh, Train. So building off a, a previous point, how do we, uh, a Gen Y, not me, uh, Emma, how do we, a Gen Y, a millennial folk already in the workforce, who feel ethically and morally driven, cope with uh, the current uh, health and digital workforce where our leaders don't all have the same principles? So any advice? So how do you influence up the organization? Maybe John and then Tim, just a thought. So um, there's lots of different research that shows us that at moments of particular crisis, when the system was against a particular ethical reality or even doing immoral things, that it was never one person who could change that situation. So for example, Martin Gilbert has looked at people who during the Holocaust in Europe helped 
a Jew or a gay person, a family, a gypsy, whatever, a group of people survive and they hid them and moved them along. And Gilbert wanted to actually applaud these people for their moral strength. What he found was that in fact, it was always a small group, that one person couldn't do it. Eight or 10 people always had to participate in order to share food, share shelter, move people so that police authorities didn't find them. That to me is the metaphor for organizational change. Even when the system is top heavy and even when it's very drawn, you know, driven by one particular metric of performance, the good nature of people inside the organization can still make a huge difference in both affecting their, what they do to be ethical and moral, but it also becomes contagious. So we have research that shows us that good behavior and bad behavior are both contagious. Bad behavior gets passed on or reinforces about five other relationships and good behavior about 4.5. So a lot of our negative news is that 0.5 difference when you scale it up, but it just shows that it actually can be contagious. Good people wanna do good things. Most people inside themselves would prefer the opportunity to do something that's not only successful, but that actually fulfills that other S of social responsibility. Hmm. I'm very supportive of grassroots, bottom up, bottoms up work like that. In a perfect world, you'd have uh, bottoms up and top down. I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate I get to work for a company that has both. There's a lot of like-minded people within Microsoft, but we have all the air cover we could possibly imagine hmm. from our CEO and, and his senior leadership team. If you don't have that, that benefit, uh, as John said, identifying like-minded people within the organization and, and trying to get uh, the, the collective voice um, loud as it can be within the bounds of your corporate culture is a, is a, is a pretty important thing. I guess the advice that I would uh, give you is know your audience. Uh, impassioned pleas for social good tend to not work very well on business leaders with massive pressures. Uh, to ship on time, hit a revenue number, and all the things that keep a business leader up at night. And uh, engaging that person uh, with a thir with thirty minutes of time and wagging your finger on harms to society isn't gonna isn't gonna work. Uh, so you you need to approach this problem from here's 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 what this will do to make the product more successful in the marketplace, to help you reach your revenue numbers, to differentiate you from competitors, to burnish the the reputational. Uh, impact of the brand that the company carries with it uh, as you take this product to market. Uh, speak to whatever it is that's keeping that person up at night um, and, and be careful just not to find yourself developing a stump speech in the echo chamber of like-minded people. The people you, you, whose hearts and minds you're trying to win are tossing attorney at night thinking about an entirely different set of things. Very well said. Well, well maybe so, uh, on that so note, to Tim, to Tim's please, point, yeah. So yeah. to Tim's point, to be ethical in, in, in requiring or, or asking about ethics in an organization, uh, to have that empathy, to imagine the situation of the other. And usually where we have fallen apart in the past with ethics is exactly, again, as Tim said, the finger wagging, you should be doing this. Whereas the real breakthroughs come when we ask a shared question in a new way that mm -hmm. opens up other possibilities and deeper discussion. That's right. Very well said. I, I'm going to ask you both for, um, again, a, a, a simply a complex question. And that's if you were going to uh, uh, share with the group one takeaway. So one takeaway, one thing that you'd like the group or you feel that the group 
could take back to the respective organization. Um, and kind of, as you said, John, you know, kind of spread to, to uh, share with others to make a bit of a difference. Um, what would that be, John? What would that be, uh, Tim? So if there was one takeaway from our talk today that you'd like to share, reinforce. Well, this is a moment where we're learning a lot about what isn't working, what could be better, or what we hope will work when we reopen our economies, our businesses, our social interactions. So I think it's a moment for honest reflection. If I'm honest, where have I not been thinking about some of these ethical issues? Or if I'm honest, what are the blind spots in our organization that this particular moment of rupture allows me with critical thinking to look at in a more deliberate way? And then if I'm honest, what would I really want to promise my customers, to promise my employees, to work together going forward? Uh, so I think it's a moment for honest reflection. Thank you, John. Tim. I guess if there were, there were one, it would be uh, responsible, responsible tech begins at design time. Right, the, the, the age old process of assessing the impact of a product, a service, a technology on people and society after the fact. Um, it's risky because uh, if you, based on what you find, it could have reputational implications for the company. Uh, it's expensive uh, to retrofit a product or a service to meet a, a guideline that was set in place either through public policy or internal governance or, or otherwise. It's expensive. It takes your people away from shipping the next product to go fix the, the existing product. So um, asking the questions, many of the ones that John talked about uh, earlier in the, the session uh, that, that take place during the formative stage of an idea where it's nothing more than a chicken scratch on a whiteboard, that's the time where these conversations uh, need to start. Uh, don't, don't wait. So I, I want to thank you both for very insightful comments. Um, and to mention to, uh, to my colleagues around the virtual table, Within the next 24 hours, you'll receive an email from uh, from the team here with a short summary of some of the uh, the video that we've just uh, covered, uh, together with uh, an artifact from my colleague John De La Costa, an article that John has shared. Um, I also want to uh, 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 let you know again that uh, hopefully I'll reconnect with some of you at tomorrow's session. Um, um, apologies to uh, to Tim; it will be IBM tomorrow. Uh, and my colleague uh, Carl Breedenberg, who will talk about IBM's global uh, project to connect design um, with design schools around the world to challenge uh, to tackle some of our COVID-19 challenges confronting business. So that will be tomorrow's talk. And then finally, um, for those that uh, would like to stay a little bit longer with us, we're going to take a you know a 30 second, 60 second stretch break, and then we'll reconvene for another 20 minutes. Um, around the virtual table and bring a number of you in uh, so it's not only a chat but we can see you visually by including you as panelists. So for those that would want to continue the conversation we can do that for a little longer. My guests have kindly agreed to stay with us till about quarter after the hour. So with that for those that have to leave uh, a virtual round of applause for, uh, for John and uh, Tim.